Hi, I'm Michaela McGuirk-Scalaro and you're listening to City Road. The 2023 Festival of Urbanism has provided us with some fascinating panel discussions that confront the many contested views on our cities and urban regions. We know we must end, sprawl and densify our cities, but are tall towers the answer? Can the skyscraper solve our affordable housing problem? Should Sydney go up or go out? In this panel, we try to answer these questions. We'll hear from cardiologist Dr Fiona Fu, Professor Cathy Sherry from Smart Green Cities at the Macquarie University, the Manager of Strategic Planning at Waverley Council, Tim Sneesby, and the Chair of Architecture and Design at the University of Western Sydney, Professor Michael Chapman. I'll let Tehran Elzadeh introduce the author of Saving Sydney, Dr Elizabeth Farley, to kick us off. Welcome everybody. My name is Turan Alzadeh and I am an Associate Professor of Urbanism and Infrastructure at the Sydney School of Architecture, Design and Planning. I'm also an ARC Future Fellow and the lead investigator of a multidisciplinary, multi-university project called Infrastructure Governance Incubator, funded by the Henry Harlan Research Trust. Tonight, I'm honored to represent the Trust and welcome you all to this fantastic event. Before we begin with the proceedings, I would like to acknowledge and pay respect to the traditional owners of the land on which we meet, the Gadigals. It is upon their ancestral land that the University of Sydney is built. As we share our own knowledge, teaching, learning, and research practices, within this university, may we also pay respect to the knowledge embedded forever within the Aboriginal custodianship of country. This evening's event on the contest over density, whether Sydney should go up or out, whether high density solves or exacerbates urban heat problems, whether you can do density well, and a few more questions like that would have to be one of the most urgent and contagious issues we face in Sydney, but also more broadly across Australia. So, I am delighted to introduce the chair of this evening session, Dr. Elizabeth Farley, who is one of the Sydney's leading public intellectuals on cities and urbanism, and the Henry Harlan Research Trust writer in residence. In case you've forgotten, Elizabeth was for 30 years the Sydney Morning Herald's weekly principal essays on urban planning and city making, trained in architecture and philosophy with a PhD in urbanism from the University of Sydney. She is a director of the National Trust New South Wales and a former City of Sydney councillor. Author of several published books, she is a Walkley shortlisted writer, and her most recent book is Killing Sydney, The Fight for a City's Soul. Of course, tonight's session is in answer to that very well-acclaimed and important book. With that introduction, Elizabeth, the floor is yours. Um, thank you, Turan, and thank you, thank you, everyone, for being here. It's lovely to... See everybody here. Um, we were here at this time 
last year launching this project, Saving Sydney, and here we are supposedly at the conclusion of it, although of course I haven't got the writing finished. That's a bit me. Um, nevertheless, I would like to, um, first of all, to thank the Henry Halloran Institute of Trust, um, in fact, for the opportunity to be a writer in residence for a year and a bit. Um, it's been a lot of fun, and it's, it will go on being fun until I finish this project. Uh, I would also like to acknowledge the uh, traditional owners of this land, the Gadigal people, and to pay my respects to elders, past, present and emerging. And I am conscious in saying that, that it can sound a bit perfunctory, but I think it is important, especially for those of us in these professions, um, because the idea of uh, the sacredness of country should be sitting at the bottom of everything we do, in my opinion. Um, so I think it has special significance for us. Saving Sydney is... Uh, the, the written thing is, is titled something like Seven Ideas to, um, to Help Sydney Be Its Better Self. Uh, it is a riposte to killing Sydney. When I wrote that book in 2021, a lot of people said to me, you know, the Sydney that you like so much, which is the kind of old higgledy-piggledy, messed up, uh, too narrow streets, um, heavily tree-canopied Sydney. In other words... Um, Traditional Sydney, I suppose. But that's not the only bit. Like, there's lots of even the CBD I'm fond of, <laughs> although I don't like the term. But um, people said that Sydney doesn't exist. And I have to say that since I wrote that book, which is about two and a half years, even less of it exists. Um, and, I, and I still feel protective of it. Um, and it's interesting that so much of the argument for destruction that continues to happen is about is now about affordability and housing supply the assumption being um, of course that in order to supply housing in, in order to drop prices we have to supply housing which means that we have to remove all controls which means we have to build uh, ultra high density in the way that we're doing it so so part of the purpose of this session tonight is to question a lot of that um, one of the reasons my writing project is running a bit late is that I stood for election in between launching and finishing this uh, book, I guess it'll be. And when, when we were launching our election campaign, someone, our strategist said, you don't worry about it, you just have to think about and be very clear about what are your core values. And I said, well, that's really simple. For me, they're truth, beauty and justice. And <laughs> she said, don't mention those words. <laughs> <laughs> it was almost like, this is Australia, we don't talk about that stuff. Um, so I didn't, but I, now I feel like I can in this room because I reckon you guys will get it. Um, but it was, I was gently shocked by that, of course. But I do think that, that those values underpin everything that I want, I want us to talk about, I guess, tonight. Justice is about, um, you know, we're looking at skyscraper, skyscraper, the question of whether the tower, which is rampant across Sydney at the moment. You will have noticed that it's not just inner Sydney, it's, um, you know, Blacktown and Bankstown and Lidcombe and everywhere is suddenly clumped with, in my opinion, very low quality, mostly very low quality towers, not exclusively, I have to say. There are some quite good ones. Um, but there are, so there are questions about whether that's the best way to densify Sydney. Um, and, and the justice thing is about whether... That's whether they're fair. Um, the beauty thing is whether they're capable of good design. And 
The truth question, of course, goes to our public debate about these things and the extent to which in the conversation, such as it is between government developers, architects and the public, um, how much, what, what is the truth content of that conversation? If indeed anything, is it more than zero? So, so I find those questions very interesting um, intellectually, but also very important practically. The housing, the, the assumption that uh, increasing supply will reduce prices and that we have to, in order to do that, we have to abandon not just red tape but green tape relies on a, on a number of assumptions which are that high density requires high buildings, that increasing supply by rezoning for tall buildings will necessarily lower prices, um, and that this will all be a blow for equality and for the environment. I think none of those propositions have been demonstrated, and there's quite a lot of counter-arguments um, to contradict them. Uh, so, so I suppose what we're talking about is, are any of those assumptions correct? Does density demand height? Will rampant development actually increase affordability, um, given that over the last 12 or so years of, a, of the biggest building boom we've seen, uh, prices have done nothing but skyrocket. Uh, and so, therefore, are towers a good thing for, for the environment, for amenity, for social justice, um, or indeed for anyone? And, and on the flip side of that, are all dissenters essentially NIMBYs or or is there an honourable way to, and, and decent and sensible way to discuss all this? So where does truth lie in that conversation? So that's the kind of preamble. And now I would like to introduce our speakers, who are all wonderful, actually. And I'm delighted and honoured that they've all agreed to be here tonight to help with this conversation. Very broad-ranging um, group of people. First of all, and this is not in any particular order, um, Professor Cathy Sherry. Um, if you would like to come up as I kind of introduce you, Cathy Sherry is a professor of law and an executive member of Smart Green Cities at Macquarie University. She's, also, she's a leading international expert in land law with a particular focus on high-density development and an interest in the complex legal, economic and social relationships created by collectively owned land. Um, her book, which is called Strata Title Property Rights, um, private Governance of Multi-Owned Properties, nice cosy title, um, is, is um, very influential and, and actually quite an interesting read, um, uh, which, is, is, which is a big thing to say for a law book for, and a non-lawyer. Uh, and she also has an interest which, which is close to my heart in urban agriculture and food literacy. So that's quite cool. Uh, Professor Michael Chapman. Um, is a professor of architecture at University of Western Sydney. Actually, no, Western Sydney University, it's called. I always get that wrong. Um, his research, writing and practice focus on a, a range of subjects, architectural drawing, urbanism, industrialisation, artificial intelligence and climate change. Michael has won many awards, including the Bayera Hadley, and has been exhibited nationally and internationally, including at the Venice Biennale, which is very cool. Um, and he's also engaged actively in architectural practice. Uh, Dr. Fiona Fu is uh, a general clinical and interventional cardiologist um, with extensive experience in interventional cardiology, including, I'm going to try and pronounce all these things properly, coronary angiography, angioplasty, and stents. She promotes an active and healthy lifestyle and is also 
um, an active member of Doctors for the Environment Australia and has written a lot about climate change and its importance in um, in heart health but also in public health as a sort of as a major factor in public health she's passionate about international pro bono aid work especially in Fiji and Nepal and Tim Sneesby is a manager of strategic planning at Waverley Council he's always worked closely with developers and I say that, but trying not to be, not, not to sound pejorative. It's not a mean thing to say. In fact, he, you said it about yourself, Tim. Um, so I suppose working closely with developers is actually a good thing because I think that's probably an educational process. Um, and I say that quite seriously, including in a Sydney um, urban economics consultancy and in London as a planner, a former recipient of the Planning Institute of Australia's National Young Planner of the Year Award. Tim also has a keen interest in housing affordability and the relationship of the housing market to planning policy, which of course is absolutely the global topic du jour, so um, very on theme. Uh, all of that said, my first question is for Fiona, because uh, we want to talk about urban heat, and uh, urban heat is a very big issue. It's a particularly big issue in Western Sydney these days. Some of you may be aware of recent work conducted by um, Associate Professor Sebastian Fouch, again at Western Sydney Uni, who's measured uh, 50 degrees at uh, six or seven places in Penrith in recent years, recent summers. So, I mean, that's the kind of heat that kills people. So I want, first of all, Fiona, just to ask you about the physiology of extreme heat of that kind and how it, how it affects people, really. Uh, so very relevant given the recent heat wave we've all kind of experienced. Um, so you've probably already heard, you know, all the headlines from uh, the Northern Hemisphere and the amount of um, medical conditions it produces. So I like to think of heat uh, in terms of what we call direct effects. So you've got direct effects of um, heat-related illnesses. So these are things like heat, heat exhaustion, heat stroke. Um, give you an example, Sydney and the, the marathon on the weekend. 25 people were taken to hospital, about 40 people were treated uh, by paramedics from, from essentially heat exhaustion and possibly from heat stroke because they were running in 20 degree heat or even higher and they were running a marathon. Um, and so it's people like out, um, athletes, for example, that you know, can, can um, suffer from those, those things, but also all elderly, young children, pregnant um, and people with underlying heart disease can, and other um, chronic illnesses, sorry, can have, can be at risk of these heat-related illnesses. But essentially anyone can be affected by these, especially when you've got these high temperatures and you can't cool yourself down. So you've got the heat-related illnesses and then you've got the indirect heat effects and these are where you get exacerbation of chronic disease. So for example, if you've got heart disease, you have an increased risk of having a, a cardiac event. Um, and actually the number one cause of death during a heat wave is actually from a cardiovascular event. Now, I won't go into kind of all the physiology about it, but from, from a heart point of view, you know, when people, um, when, you, when you're exposed to extreme heat, you, you need to sweat off that heat, so you have increasing sweat. You, the, um, the body cools itself down by increasing sweat evaporation, and it, it gets all the blood to the skin and everything dilates. But that reduces the filling of the heart, 
Um, and then the heart has to work harder. And then if you have underlying heart disease or other illnesses, then you can lead to cardiovascular collapse and having a heart attack. So that is why people who have underlying heart disease are at particularly increased risk of, of heat. But anyone who, anyone, anyone, um, you know, young, old, who cannot cool themselves down will also be at risk of these heat-related illnesses. Um, and particularly, like, uh, in the instance of heat stroke, you, they present um, because they can't cool their, themselves down, their t core temperature is just still so high, and then they can get uh, like stroke-like symptoms. So they get neurological symptoms, they get confusion. Um, you know, it's like they're having a stroke, and, and that, that is a medical emergency, and these people need to get to a hospital, and they need to be rapidly called. Mm -hmm. And you need to think about that, not, you know, everyone, um, you know, think of your, your neighbours, elderly people, but, you know, even um, people like in sporting groups, uh, outdoor workers, these are all these kind of people that are at risk. And so leading up to the, like, you know, we've just experienced this, but leading up to our summer, um, you, you know, we need to kind of be, be mindful of, you know, what you can do to prepare yourself um, to make sure that you, you don't get too hot um, and, and, you know, things like that. So, 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 you know, it's everything from, you know, drinking lots of water, you know, keeping um, your indoor, keeping indoors and keeping, you know, shades, uh, making, you know, closing the windows and things like that. Um, very simple, kind of simple things. And yeah. then from my point of view, if you're on certain medications, they can increase your risk of heat-related illnesses. Um, and having review of that with your doctor as well. Um, and just a, a follow-up, really, about how the how do you see the sort of social or socio-demographic patterns of that playing out in Sydney? Because it's, I'm conscious that Western Sydney, which is where you know the bulk of our population lives, is also the hottest part, and also has all of those new suburbs with sort of black roofs that we see pictures of constantly, and and no trees, and uh, and also has the highest concentration um, of chronic disease, I think, um, in, well, certainly in Sydney. So that sort of it seems like a triple or quadruple whammy for those people. Correct, right? yeah. So these people, yeah, so definitely Western Sydney have the highest rates of diabetes and obesity. Um, and they're all living, you know, they don't have the dense living, but they're living in all, uh, uh, in houses. There's a lack of trees, so we, the, some of the research has been that um, two, two, two streets they're 20 degrees difference because one has trees and one doesn't. Mm. Um, but these people, so they live in, like, housing, they're living in a hot area, but they, they don't, and they have a lot of chronic disease, and they don't, you know, they drive everywhere, so they don't get the exercise in, then it's too hot for them to exercise. Um, you know, so all of these things uh, kind of exacerbate even more. So you've, mm. got, you've got a population that are also lower socioeconomically, have more chronic diseases, but they're exposed to more heat, they have lack of, um, you, you know, they have lack of ability to, you know, exercise and do something, um, and you know, they, they are at increased risk um, from mm. that. So, mm. so that that is a, that is a big thing, and mm. you can you can see, yeah, definitely the demographics in in Western Sydney that they're going to, uh, they um, they they will have more, you know, hospital admissions and all those kind of things because of the chronic illnesses, but with this increased heat in that area, as Elizabeth pointed out, it's it's unlivable. You can't live in 50 degree heat mm. um, you know even people you know all of us were you know sweltering in 30 degrees right yeah. um, you know so like mm. it's it's not um, you know physiologically you cannot live in 50 degrees heat mm, dreadful um, thank you so Kathy Sherry um, let's I'm interested too in the 
if you like, the moral aspects of this debate, in particular questions of social equity with regard to um, strata schemes. You've argued uh, publicly in the paper that uh, the men's proposal to enlarge developments by 30% as a reward for providing 15% of affordable housing for 15 years um, is a huge win, uh, but only for developers. Can you tell us why you argued that and, and what you think about those big strata schemes? Because it's not going to do anything for the many young people who are sitting in the audience here who probably have reliable incomes, pay their rent regularly and should be able to afford their own house. So affordable housing is a very narrow definition. I think a lot of people in the public think that affordable housing just means that we'll be able to afford to buy housing. That's actually <laughs> not what it means at all. It's a very narrow tranche of rental housing available for certain people um, and it's not going to solve the housing the housing affordability problem. I mean, I, like a lot of people, I think the key thing is we have to get investors out of the market. And that means you, me, Elizabeth, anyone over the age of 50 should not be buying an apartment as a tax um, uh, deduction. Um, and we've made mm. a terrible mistake with apartments. So my generation are all hogging your homes because some of us are old enough to remember when developers, when they first pushed apartments in the 1960s, maybe that's too strong a word, but Dick Dizzle was doing that, always referred to apartments as home units. And the big thing was convincing people that an apartment could be a permanent home, so they were called home units. Somehow in the last 20 years, we've completely lost sight of that, and apartments have become investment vehicles. So it's a way of building wealth. But it invariably means if you build wealth, you are building wealth at the expense of your fellow citizens because housing is a basic human necessity. It's not an optional consumer item. It's a basic necessity. Everybody has to have it. And if you are building wealth out of somebody else's basic necessity, that's going to invo involve some exploitation. The example I often give to people is, imagine we had tax policies that encouraged some people to stockpile food and then on-sell it at an inflated price. We'd probably think that was morally a bit dodgy. We wouldn't really, you know, it's called profiteering in times of war. You don't want people to do that. And yet that's exactly what we've encouraged with housing. And people have just, en masse, Australians have lost sight of the fact that housing is is a basic necessity and ideally everybody should be able to own their own house. I, I, I mean it really scares me the way, I mean I think it's really important for, for, um, for um, things to become better for renters, for residential tenancies to have better conditions but it scares me the way we're kind of giving up on the idea that young people with reliable incomes could own um, um, their own home and those homes should be apartments, those smaller homes that should be affordable for younger people. And the, sorry to go back to your original question, the question of building more, that's got nothing to do with providing young people with homes. That's so investors can buy more investment mm. products. Mm. So can you, I don't know if you can enumerate the, the laws that we'd have to change to, to enable, I mean, what would we have to shift apart from negative gearing uh, to, to enable that kind of level of ownership, do you think? I think we need to change, I mean, there are lots of things we need to stop doing first home owners grants, which just drive up the price of housing a corresponding amount. Um, I think we need to change our mind mindset. I think that's mm. the single biggest thing. So what I see in Strata is people who see apartments are investments. So it's but a cultural change. It's a cultural change. Mm. I also do wonder with apartments, it's also a global phenomenon. I do think in the past it was the case that only people who are really rich could own property. Strata apartments mean you 
you chunk large buildings into tiny bits that mums and dads can afford to buy. I think I do, I do think there is something in the nature of apartments that actually fuels investment markets. But the answer is not just let developers build more. That will, I mean, the most obvious thing is no, and I don't understand why the economists don't don't factor this in. No developer is going to build apartments to flood the market to depress the value of their product. So I was with a whole yeah, lot of yeah. mates the other day who are obvious, lawyers, and I said to them, "What are you doing?" They do. This is a law firm that does a lot of really big residential work in Sydney, has done some of the most significant builds. I said, what are you doing? They said, oh, we're just doing mixed-use stuff. And I said, what about resi? They said, no, 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 developers are not building because interest rates are going up and construction costs are going up. They are not... The idea that they will flood the market with enough stock to make the price fall is laughable. Um, so, Tim, I think that goes to you, really, doesn't it? Because you've argued that supply-side solutions to housing affordability are misguided and unlikely to help. Is that right? Yeah, totally. Um, I feel like you answered the, the question in a way in your introduction really well. <laughs> um, it's just this whole supply-side thinking, it's, it's really just trickle-down economics um, applied to the housing market. You know, so in the same way that cutting taxes for businesses didn't mean low-income earners got a pay rise, it's the same, it's the same principle that applies um, in, in housing. So, uh, you know, when I, when I came into the profession over 10 years ago, I, I was just increasingly frustrated by these, this narrative about supply. Um, you know, and I think it really only started to come out when house prices became unaffordable, you know, so, so from the, the, the booms of the early 2000s and into the 2010s. And so, um, you, you know, every, every second day there's an article in the mainstream media about we need to increase supply, uh, we need to increase supply, that'll bring down prices, that'll solve the crisis. Uh, and, I, and, I, and I did a LinkedIn post the other day just ranting about it. I often rant about it in, you know, articles or, or on, to my colleagues if they'll listen or to my wife. But, um, <laughs> you, you know, the, the interesting thing about all of these news articles is that they, they all speak to, you know, uh, falling completions, falling approvals, and it's all linked to uh, falling finance because people aren't buying anymore. Okay, and so, you know, people aren't buying for, for a range of reasons. Housing's become unaffordable. Construction costs are incredibly high. Interest rates are now much higher than they were a couple of years ago. So people have stopped buying. And, and one of the biggest sort of, I call it the supply myth, one of the biggest issues is that people don't, or the mainstream media or the politicians, don't understand that, that housing is a build-to-order product. Uh, you, you consumers need to want to buy a house to build a house. It's not a build uh, to sell products like um, you know, bananas, for example. So, so the issue is um, consumers have stopped buying, and you'll find these articles talking about you know, consumers have stopped buying, all of these indicators, finance approvals, um, completions, etc., have all fallen off. And then in the very next breath, and we need to cut um, planning controls so that we can <laughs> in, right. increase housing supply. Yeah. And right. I, I mean, it, it beggars belief, frankly, that there's no other good or service where you could talk about people have stopped buying bananas. Um, farmers need to go and grow more bananas. Yeah. Um, you, you know, there's, there's, there's no other <clears throat> product we use that same logic. So um, it's incredibly frustrating for, for planning and, and simply all of the really good empirical evidence out there, um, not only in Sydney but um, all, all across Australia, and a lot of that's produced by the University of Sydney, um, is, mm -hmm. demonstrates that, that house prices have increased in the last decade and more because of low, record low interest rates. Um, it's the same story in, across Australia as in Northern Europe, as in North America. Um, all, all of these factors have been uh, lower interest rates despite 
approvals or completions being different rates in those countries. So, so all of the good empirical evidence has demonstrated that, but unfortunately, uh, you know, it's in the interest of the development lobby to push this idea that um, we need to solve the, the housing crisis with supply, um, and that's helped along by you know supply side economists like the RBA, for example. Mm. Um, you know, the, the, the sort of I mean, and frankly, neoliberal economics is sort of the you know the, that's the hegem hegemony in our society. So, um, you know, so, so, so they're pushing that angle. Um, you know, and, and unfortunately, what that's meant is is that politicians at, at all different levels are, are now pushing that argument. You know, frankly, there's probably only two planning ministers, uh, Rob Stokes and Bob Carr, were the, probably the only two that, that didn't buy that argument. Um, so you think they actually believe it? Because it seems implausible, well, doesn't it? Or they just say, was it just a stroke of genius on the part of the PR firm employed by the development lobby? I think it's very convenient yeah. for yeah. state government and federal government politicians to push that line because mm. what it means is, is it comes down to councils mm. and it's the council planners mm. um, that are holding up supply and they're the problem. It's, it's not the negative gearing, it's not the taxation <laughs> settings, it's not the capital gains tax of the federal, at the federal level. Mm. Um, it, it's not the state government not intervening and, and providing social and affordable housing, which they should be doing. Um, so they can wipe their hands clean of, of, of those arguments, which would actually help by pointing the finger at councils, by pointing the finger at the planning system. So, so you, work, you work for Waverley, which has a number of very fine towers lined up along the ridge there at Bondi Junction. Um, what's your view of whether we need high rise to sort out high density or medium high density? Yeah, it's, it's, it's a good question. Uh, so for those that don't know Bondi Junction, this sort of <laughs> has t 10 to 12 storey towers in Bondi Junction, but... I like to draw the analogy, um, you know, of the fact that we don't need high rise to, to have high density. And the analogy I, I draw in in my LGA, for example, is I, I point to Bondi Junction with its with its towers, um, and then I point to the, the neighbouring suburb of Mill Hill, which has terraces, and then I point to Bondi Beach, which has the classic four pack, uh, two up, two down apartments. Each of those different typologies has the same dwelling density. Uh, and so that's what I like to point to, and I think it speaks to this idea of the missing middle, mm. uh, which we've been speaking to for about a decade now, that, yes. uh, you know, all of, the, all of the good urbanists are out there preaching the missing middle, mm. uh, you know, and, and so I think that's something that, that us planners would like to see more of. I think it's, it's very challenging to retrofit the missing middle yeah. in, in our cities, mm. um, you, you know, and so that's, that's why we see, for example, holy alliance, an unholy alliance between Save Our Suburbs and the Urban Task Force who want you know more more towers uh, in and around stations because it's very difficult to um, to, to, to retrofit things like terraces or, or, or four pack type apartments mm. in the suburbs. Mm -hmm. um, it's much easier uh, for the larger developers to argue um, for windfall gains around stations. <laughs> so. Yes, always good to argue for windfall gains in developers' <laughs> land. Um, Michael Chapman, I would like to ask you um, what we're going to do about this. But, no, look, I, <laughs> yeah, you're the one that has to come up with the solution. Uh, no, actually, what I want to ask you about is what's your view of this high-rise debate as an architect and someone who's recently moved to Sydney, and I think you said you're living in or have bought into a high-rise <laughs> apartment tower. Is that right? So, so perhaps that gives you a conflict of interest, but, um, or perhaps not. So just interested in your view of all this... Yeah, no, I, um, no, I think that <laughs> all of those things are actually true, that <laughs> I um, have recently given up quite an idyllic existence. Um, and I, when I moved to Sydney, and I, I came here because I'm interested in the Western Sydney project and, and all of the complexity of that and 
and wanting to teach the kind of students that are engaged in that and are coming out of those environments. But I, I wanted to buy the smallest piece of residential accommodation I could um, <laughs> that was close to nature, allowed me to ride a bike to university, um, and I wanted to be amongst a, a diverse, multicultural, highly layered um, and multi-generational environment. And my environment that I'm living in is absolutely stimulating in, in, in sense of that, that, um, you know, I've never been more close to a, a broader range of, of types of living, which um, wasn't necessarily something I expected. But having said that, I live in a suburb where, you know, the community centre is built by a developer, the bridge is built by a developer, the buses are run by developers. The shape <laughs> of the environment is actually driven by decisions made for primarily through capitalism, maybe um, given up being able to provide those services and, and the market is, is moving in and actually deciding what a city is like. Um, my faith or my optimism in that is that people have moved in and have actually created environments out of that. And from my perspective as a, an agent of architecture or an advocate for architecture, I, I absolutely believe in the quality of good design and the more people that can live in well-designed environments um, is, for me, the, the most important thing that, that architects can do is increase the number of people that get the opportunity to live in those environments. And rather than doing expensive houses in, in beautiful sites, um, I, I think the generation of architects I'm teaching won't be building big projects. They'll actually be modifying the projects that exist. So for me, the, the potential... Um, is not in, in what we... Because I don't think we'll be building big projects like this with the issues of carbon and climate and all of those things in 10 years' time. So what, what are the opportunities for architects to actually have a bigger involvement, more autonomy, and provide better opportunities for more people? Um, and in Western Sydney, I think that's a, a really big question because, um, yeah, there, there is no doubt that the cost of providing design is... Mm. Mm. a factor. It increases dramatically the availability yeah. of it. Yes, and, and I'm interested, um, you know, when you, when you bring apartments together, uh, any kind of dwelling, of course, it applies to, but I'm curious about um, not just the dwellings themselves, but what kinds of streets and communities they make when they're kind of agglomerated together, and um, whether... There are things we should be doing differently. In particular, I suppose, whether there are things that um, should be differently regulated in order to improve either the dwelling quality or the quality of the, of the streets that result, and the streets and, you know, neighbourhoods, I guess, that result. Yeah, no, I, uh, I, I definitely think regulation, and obviously, you know, there's a, a lot of planning history to it, but mm. it, it, it affects environments in really absolute mm. ways and, and and if you look at I mean I, I'm very drawn to Asian cities but the, the, the absence of regulation and, and allowing people to do so many different things creates these incredibly interesting environments but, mm. but one of the ones like the missing middle debate I think is quite interesting but the conversation about the size of the apartment that you live in and the quality of that apartment um, and how much agency you have over it, I think, needs to come into that debate. Like, the house that I live in in Cooks Hill is half the size of the smallest apartment I could find to buy. Um, <laughs> and I think there's... If I could buy something half that size... And, I, like, I live in a west-facing apartment with all of those issues of heat, but it forces me at 
three o'clock in the afternoon to take my dog down to the river with my laptop and, and get outside of my apartment. And mm. even if it's through bad design, if an architect can get you outside in a natural environment, <laughs> it's a good outcome for, for everyone. Bad design um, is good design. <laughs> bad design. Yes, I like this. <laughs> so does that mean we should be regulating less or more? <laughs> I, uh, or different? I, I, I think councils need to reclaim the, the space that the, the public level of the ground and the city belongs to the people. It doesn't belong to developer, mm. developer interest. Um, and it, it shouldn't be fuelled by commercial... Like, it shouldn't be wealthy restaurants. And mm. it, it actually is a socialist collective. And as soon as you give that up, you give up, you know, the Does, idea of the city, really. Doesn't and the idea of affordable house at, uh, space at street level suggest that we have to keep heights down in order to keep property prices down, in order to keep rents reasonable, if you're going with capitalism, I guess. Yeah. Um, Don't you think? I, I, I do difficult. think that... I mean, I'm of the view that density does create... Um, yeah, the, the more of the natural environment we can preserve, the better. And, and mm. I'm also mm. aware of yeah. large amounts of Sydney that are covered with, with yeah. very mediocre, middle, yeah, medium yeah. density housing um, that is almost devoid of, of natural kind of qualities. So being precise, I think, and being deliberate. But if you're a, an architect working on a high-rise building, if you make a mistake, even a slight mistake, you're often repeating that three or 400 times. And, yeah. <laughs> um, and so regulation is trying to f force a, a basic level of behaviour. But if you're doing something well, you're also creating a much mm. better outcome. So mm. I... Yeah... I mean, I, I'm, I'm drawn to, to cities like Madrid and Paris and obviously the, the sort of eight-storey kind of type cities, but Madrid's also an incredibly hot city in, <laughs> you know, yeah, yeah, in the summer um, because of right, all of yeah. those concrete surfaces mm. and, and it's really the parks that actually... So I guess what I'm actually advocating for is, is, is natural environments mm. and, you know, opportunities for architects to get... or for people to get out of... Mm. not sit in their apartment but actually go out into the world and, and, and actually live more of their life mm. as a community. Yeah. Um, interesting. Uh, I'm sure this conversation could run for some time, but I'm going to ask the, um, if anyone on the floor has a question or comment at this point. Question, ideally, for... Yes. Um, hi there. Nicole Dennis. I'm an urban planner. I've got a question for Tim in council. Some of the work I've done years ago, working um, on planning side and getting you know, new subdivisions through um, Blacktown, Liverpool, in Western Sydney... We had, uh, this was a big learning experience for me, we had a lot of pushback from council. They couldn't afford to put in many street trees. We tried to value add with better water sensitive urban design, you know, additional trees. The developer was happy to create better streets with more trees, more greening. We connected with all the researchers. They had their pilot program. But at the end of the day, the engineering department was worried about their ongoing budget <laughs> and had a huge challenge with the amount of growth in infrastructure that those councils have. Um, and we know with the additional infrastructure charges in terms of SICK and uh, contributions and also Sydney Water struggling to provide infrastructure and we've got the four-year transition of those charges, I just wanted to hear from council's perspective where that conversation lies. I know there's tension with state, but there is the challenge that often just an observation that some developers, particularly when they can create a larger community, they are controlling that public space in the parks because they see that as part of their product. Um, yeah, just interesting thoughts from you or the rest 
of the panel, I think it's a pretty big challenge that stakeholders across that are trying to do in terms of Western Sydney. Thanks for the question, Nicole, and good to see you after all these years. I mean, Blacktown's probably almost the opposite of, of Waverley, so I'll, um, in, in terms of, of LGAs, but um, it, it's, it's very, I mean, the, the, infrastructure, the infrastructure contributions and the infrastructure challenge and coordinating that with land use um, is probably the, the, the major issue in, in, in urban planning. Um, you know, and, and frankly, the issue being that uh, historically, land would be rezoned without a contributions, a development contributions framework in place, and so that would co create all sorts of problems. Uh, you know, and, and frankly, councils would often take years to develop that, as well as the state government with the six, um, the state infrastructure contributions, which is which is now actually why we've got the the housing and productivity contribution. Um, you know, for those planning nerds playing out there, so um, it's it's a huge challenge to try to line those up. Um, you know, councils often aren't as responsive as they could be with, with providing infrastructure. Um, but, you know, it, it's also a challenge to to, um, to get things like, I mean, trees as an example. It's very challenging. That, that was a, um, you know, there was almost a conscious of being recorded. But, um, you know, that, that was a m major challenge um, as a part of our DC, last DCP that went to council. Incredibly contentious. Trees are in, incredibly contentious in established communities anyway. Um, especially ones with, with views, um, <laughs> you, you, you know, so as we've probably seen in, in, in the media uh, in the last couple of weeks. So, um, you know, I, I know, for example, out of, out of Wilton, they had a DCP where they wanted one mature tree um, in each lot, uh, for example, and, 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 you know, that was created a, a lot of debate at the time, which is sort of, we talk about 50 wow. degree, yeah. 50 yeah, degree yeah. heat um, out in the suburbs, and, and, and we, know the, we know the benefits of canopy mm. cover. Um, so, yeah, so I'm, I'm not sure I answered your question. I went off on a tangent on trees, but, yeah, it, it, it's, it's, there's challenges on both sides in, in terms of councils implementing infrastructure, mm. um, but also getting... Cathy, did you want to say something too about that? I just wanted to say one of the risks is the, the kind of developments I specialise in. When you say developers what think it's their domain, very often it is, because the alternative to councils funding it is community title, which is just flattened out strata. So very often in Sydney now, when you're looking at what you think is public space, it's not public space at all. So Central Park down the road from here, that central bit of that when you go to the restaurants. That's not publicly owned space at all. It's privately owned private property. It belongs mm. to the development itself. So it's either stratum subdivision, which is a complex form of strata with building management statements. I promise I won't go into any detail. Or it's community <laughs> title, which is like breakfast <coughs> point. So everything looks as though it's public, but it is as much private property as my backyard is private property. And it means that the people who live there have responsibility for paying to maintain it. They often don't realise when they buy in, they have to insure it, although the public have has access to it and they can also regulate it. So somewhere like Liberty Grove, it's the, it's a, the former Olympic site. It has a privately written bylaw that says children under the age of 13 are not allowed to be on common property without a resident adult above the age of 21, which Whoa. is just wrong in so many ways. <laughs> um, 21 not being of any relevance, whatever, today. But the planning approval said you had to have this open space, mm. but the private bodies corporate have come over the top and created privately enforceable regulation mm. that says a bunch of 12-year-olds can't shoot hoops at wow. the basketball court unless they are with a resident over the age of 21, so not grandma and not their older sister who's 19 or 15. Wow, that's extraordinary. So that's, yeah. um, and there's also the question of, of private dominance of public space, and I'm thinking mm. of the very dense development currently under construction in Maracle that you might know, which is... Which is um, 
on the north side of a of a quite a small public park and totally overshadowing it and and sort of owning it in not not in fact but in in effect really which I think is also a serious issue. Um, anyway, so are there more questions? Yes, I'm Melina Rowan, a sustainability built environment specialist person who's interested in these things. Um, there are a lot of office buildings and B, C, D grade buildings at the moment that are around which are not being used. Uh, what is the panel's view on the ability to perhaps convert those into um, housing? Uh, what are the challenges? What are the opportunities? And how can they be done in an environmentally effective way? <laughs> this is your PhD topic. Um, who would like to have a go at that? Oh, not me. Tim, I'll start if that's okay. Um, it's a it's a very good question and, yeah. and certainly something that's been doing the rounds in the media from time to time. Um, you know, it might have been a thought bubble from the productivity commissioner at one stage in, in New South Wales. Um, you know, there's, it's it's challenging in a couple of ways because it assumes that only two years after COVID, <coughs> where we are now, is going to be the future um, forever more. Um, so, as, as a planner, I'm, I'm very big on the precautionary principle and, 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 and um, thinking, you know, long term, um, I'd like to see a bit more space between COVID um, and the effects of that and, and, and vacant offices. I mean, it could be a long term trend, but I'd like to see a little bit more space in terms of strategic planning before we go and make a decision which is irreversible um, because well, once you strata these office buildings, uh, they're gone forever. So, um, so for me, the precautionary principle comes to mind. I wouldn't like to do it um, until at least a few more years to understand whether we think, no, that's going to be a long-term challenge. Uh, we know there, there, are, there are issues with, with uh, retrofitting old office buildings in terms of the, the floor plates are often very deep and very large, and in terms of um, you know, trying to meet the AD, like the SEP 65 apartment design guides. Um, in, in terms of sunlight penetration and, and um, you know, of, of course, ventilation too. So, so that is, is a physical challenge. Um, and frankly, it really comes back to the supply issue. You know, and, and one of the ostensible reasons for, for doing this and converting this is that it would really help with supply. Um, and, and, and frankly, it would, it would be an amazing location for housing. Like, you know, being in the city, it's, it's the best location. Um, but, you know, I, I don't think it would do anything in terms of, of, of bringing house prices down or, or bringing rents down. Which presumably essentially requires government intervention of some kind. Sorry, Michael, you want to say something? Uh, no, I mean, it, it made me think of a, a, a project which I, I think is in Venezuela of, yeah, they built this high-rise in the 1980s and the, I think the developer banker died at the wrong time and it stayed as this unfinished thing. But then people, <laughs> squatters just kind of moved in and, and actually turned it into this amazing environment. And my, you know, when I talk about deregulation or... or you know, the way a lot of Asian cities, if, if no one's using it, then let someone use it. But my experience of living in very dense environments is it's constantly about negotiating and negotiating your privacy with about five or six other people that I live in very close proximity to. Um, but when you realise that's a conversation and that you can share and, and you can give some of your space back in order to retain some of your own privacy... It, you know, you actually have a, a very different way of thinking about living in the city as opposed to just living, you know, on, on a block in a house like, like I used to. So, so yeah, I, I would be... I know, I know it's very different to, a, to the way a, a council or a, someone might think of it, but I, I would think if no-one's using it, then why, why not let someone use it? Um, 
yeah, who's going to get hurt? Oh. <laughs> that would be cultural change, yes. <laughs> I was going to say, Elizabeth, um, yeah, I am available for squatting advice. <laughs> it's legal. Excellent, there should be more of it, yes. Um, good day. Uh, my name's George Papanicola. I'm not a representative of any organisation, so I'll just call myself concerned private citizen. Um, yeah, I, I just... Uh, I got here a bit late, so I don't know if you've touched upon this directly, although indirectly with some of the issues you've mentioned. Our Anglicare just released a report in the last week or two about the cost of poverty, which basically indicated that poor people actually have more costs to pay often than people in more well-off areas in terms of insurance, you know, extra transport costs, fuel costs, you know, so many others uh, that I won't go into now, look it up. Uh, but basically, um, can you use that kind of report, because it hasn't really made much of a splash, which I'm surprised at, uh, to leverage more support for building, uh, you know, uh, environmentally and energy efficient uh, uh, housing developments, uh, which are more cost beneficial to uh, the people who live there, because it's not just enough to actually rent or buy a place, you have to actually maintain it and pay for your bills. I mean, the only uh, thing uh, in the wealthy suburbs probably that compensates the higher rates, <laughs> which, uh, but everything else, as according to this report, uh, even the cost of food in supermarkets can be higher. Um, so I'm just wondering uh, whether you think uh, that's a possibility, um, because I worry about, and you mentioned Liberty Grove, which I know quite well, um, we could possibly end up with this idea of, you know, gated communities with rich, mainly white people, you know, who are uh, surrounded by very high fences and private security and uh, security guards. And uh, some of these uh, private communities have private roads, so they actually have legal rights to actually stop people from going in. This is something that's been very common mm -hmm. in places like LA. Um, so I'm just wondering whether if we don't do that, apart from all the health uh, costs uh, for people living there, uh, whether this will cause much social disruption in the near future. I don't think it's that far away, actually. Is that question to someone in particular, Cathy? Well, uh, no, it's, it's a very timely question. I've been thinking, yeah. or I've had conversations with students in Western Sydney about it, exactly this, particularly, um, like, the, there's a lot of uncertainties in terms of climate and all of these things, but... Uh, the one thing that is certain is we, we, we know where the sun will be. We know how certain materials like thermal mass can store that energy. Um, yeah, and if you face them the right way, and this was known when I was a student, it was... Um, and I guess the other thing about Western Sydney is it's very hot, but it's also, it also gets very, very cold, in like considerably more cold than what we have here. So just designing those, you know, the basic kind of rules of design which don't seem to occur in a lot of developer-driven housing for whatever reason and probably a lot to do with the way that land is petitioned and various things but um, but I mean I was saying to my students if you can reduce the energy bills for uh, you know a family in a low socioeconomic environment you're doing more you know and we know that those bills are going to get more and and they, these are things we can actually control it doesn't cost more necessarily to design something well so I, I in terms of, I, I think we can leverage it. I don't know how to leverage, or I don't quite have the levers to, to actually roll out much better housing, but I, I think it's a very important question, and I want my students to have the confidence to, to, to sit in meetings and actually say, well, you know, mm. it doesn't have to be this way. There are, there are simple things we can do here that can have big income, can, can have big effects, or small effects for, which, for, for people that would actually appreciate it. So... Um, but that's more of a comment. I mean, I think it's a very timely conversation, in, particularly in Western Sydney. Uh, good evening. Um, I've enjoyed living in apartments. One thing that's really bugged me is the inability to dry my clothes on the balcony, um, <laughs> yeah. often due to strata rules. 
But I'm also interested in the health implications of running a dryer constantly inside your house. Yeah. Yeah. Um, this, you're going to be horrified to hear this, but I actually wrote a PhD on strata bylaws um, because what I'm actually really interested in is the way in which strata title gives private citizens the power to write laws for their neighbours and what are the... The, I mean, civil, libertari civil liberties makes me sound like a libertarian. I'm not, obviously. But there's a basic thing that there are, the whole point of home and why it matters to us is it's a place in which we can be ourselves, live our lives according to our own values. You know, you don't have to be a neoliberal or a libertarian to think that matters. I think it matters to all of us. And so strata bylaws are extraordinary. Under the legislation, you can write a bylaw that will be valid so long as it relates to the use of a lot or common property. Common property is the hallways, but the lot is your apartment just has to relate to the use or enjoyment of your lot. A bylaw banning people eating meat in their own apartment is prima facie valid. Like, it's extraordinary. The legislation's so badly drafted. And a classic example would be, you know, banning people having pets who have no effect on anyone else, but also banning people drying things on their balcony, which is can, can sometimes be common property. But that has an effect on the enjoyment of your life, your autonomy, but also obviously it has an effect on the environment and that's a huge thing which I think governments have not got their heads around. If you let private citizens write rules, that has an effect on the rest of society and this usually horrifies people but the best, easiest example for, the, uh, for this is racially restrictive covenants in the United States, endemic. Developers throughout the 20th century allowed to do residential subdivisions that have a rule on them that says only Caucasian people can live, or live on or buy this land. Clearly that does not just affect the immediate parties to the transaction, the people who buy and sell the land. It affects the entire society and has ongoing effects in America. We have never had those in Australia, different things, but not those. But clearly when you allow private citizens to write rules that potentially regulate large amounts of land, and that's what a strata scheme is, and also when they're replicated across the city, it's large amounts of land, you're essentially allowing private citizens to write legislation and create the kind of societies we may not want to live in, going back to your point about, yes, about gated communities. These are mini societies made in accordance with particular values that might be, may not be consistent with the rest of the community, i.e. we care about climate change and we don't want people using dryers unnecessarily. I'm going to have to stop sorry. us there. I'm sorry. Um, I'm going to ask everyone to have a 10-second go at what you would change in the world of Sydney planning and city-making if you could change one thing, but in sort of six words or fewer, <laughs> if you can. <clears throat> Maybe 10. Uh, Tim, would you like to go? Do you have a, a wish? I would say that the biggest problem we face in, in urban planning is policy capture. Uh, mm. You know, it's policy capture by industry, and, mm. and if we had less of that and we had more strategic planning um, done by communities um, and governments in partnership, mm. then we would see better outcomes. We would see, I think, more green squares and, 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 and more, um, more Piermonts and, and, and less of these 30-storey um, mm. type towers you know, all around Sydney. You know, mm. I, I think that's um, just that's a that's a, a product of policy capture yeah. in the urban planning system. Good, uh, Fiona. Um, so, big thing: green and blue spaces. We just need more greenery, trees everywhere on all the streets. Um, every, you know, on all the buildings. You know, there's <laughs> that building 
you dr I drove past today, that's just covered in green. So yes, you can have high rises, but there should be green everywhere. And mm. everywhere should have light roofs with solar panels. <laughs> um, like we just all have to transition to renewable energy. And like, you know, you know, talking about poverty and, you know, we had this conversation with um, the minister for Bankstown area. Um, anyway, I can't remember. Um, but he was saying, you know, so a lot of my clients can't afford, you know, so a lot of the uh, people cannot afford solar panels. And, you know, that's when, you know, government have to kind of step in to kind of say, you know, we need to be transitioning people who can put solar panels on there to help them afford solar panels. Um, and, and then also, you know, get off the grid, but also have like community storage batteries and things as well. But the whole green spaces and blue spaces, because that's going to reduce urban heat. Um, and uh, yeah, exactly. It's huge. Yeah. And it's got, you know, health benefits, mm. you know, going to the park, doing exercise um, mentally, you know, and, and physically, yeah. Mm. Michael? Yeah, no, I agree with all of that, actually. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I, I guess if I, you know, my, I would say the more we can involve architecture and design to, to more people and also the more we can open up the urban realm to the community and, and, and have a participatory urban realm um, where everyone is feeling some ownership and actually being a part of it, I think, yeah, but, but certainly the proximity to, to nature and, and the access to good environments. Yep. Housing's a basic human necessity. It's not an asset for building wealth. A basic right. Housing is a human right. Mm, Just basic for survival. <laughs> <laughs> we have um, run out of time. I'm so sorry. This conversation could run and run. I hope everybody will stay around for half an hour or so and have a drink and a chat. And I would like to... Thank you, everybody. All I can say is um, uh, thank you to Elizabeth, thank you to our wonderful panelists, and thank you for all of you to making the time and making this a priority and showing up, because I think that's the first thing that we need to do as concerned citizens, to show up. So please keep showing up for the rest of Festival of Urbanism events, because this is uh, one of the best and few avenues that we have to hear from true experts um, and not necessarily get confused with all of the noises um, that are around us. Uh, thanks again. Thank you, everyone. Thanks for listening to this podcast series from the Festival of Urbanism. Make sure you check out all the panel discussions at cityroadpod.org. See you next time.